Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome, welcome. Glad that you're here today. We are, um, we've been talking these past few weeks about this, fra- this word that we use, made-up word, faithing it, um, we, which is about faith, but not just like as something to believe in or trust in. Faith is just this whole new way to enter the world. It's a living faith that's constituted by particular practices and, and practices that have like a direct impact on us and those around us and, and the world. And these practices, as we kind of describe them, often occur in pairs um, that work together or balance each other, like Sabbath and tithing or peacemaking and solidarity with outcasts. Or today we'll focus on another pair, and this pair is weekly worship and daily prayer. Just real quick so I get a sense of, of who we are. Raise your hand if you grew up going to church like most of the time. Okay. Raise your hand if it's, church is pretty new to you if you're... Okay, that's hardly... Just a few, yeah. Um, so raise your hand if you were taught that prayer is like a central thing for Christians to do. Most of us. Okay, excellent. I still remember like the first prayer that I was taught. It was a table grace. We said every, every time we ate, we said, God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for his food. Amen. Anybody else say that when you're kids? Yeah. Which always bugged me because good and food don't rhyme. Like, don't put those in a thing like they rhyme. They don't rhyme. Plus, in that prayer, you don't even address God. It's like you're just saying things about God. You're not even talking to God. Um, or you may have, your first prayer might have been the, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, pray the Lord my soul to Which is a messed up prayer. It's like Stephen King doing bedtime here. Like... <laughs> Let's pray, uh, see you in the morning if I don't die first. Like, this is not, you got to wonder about whoever did that. My friends and I found this in a joke book, and I, I don't know why it stuck with me. We said this all the time in, in grade school. It was, um, now I lay me down to rest. I pray to pass tomorrow's test. If I should die before I wake, that's one less test I'll have to take. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't love school when I was a kid. I was taught, um, same as you, like from an early age, that prayer is part of what Christians do. And so I tried to pray. And this, this began for me what I call a, a ride on the prayer merry-go-round, or the prairie-go-round, as the kids would say. Um, and it's just like I would try to pray and would easily become distracted or bored, and, or, or I feel like I'm just talking to the ceiling or, or it, it seemed like I would pray, but nothing ever happened. I couldn't tell any difference between when I prayed and didn't pray. And so I'd feel like I must be failing at prayer. And so then I would stop and just avoid prayer or thinking about it altogether. And then I'd feel guilty for not praying because I'm supposed to pray. And then I, when I couldn't, finally couldn't handle the guilt, I'd start praying again. And then I'd jump right back on the prayer merry-go-round again of failing and wondering why, and then giving up, and then feeling guilty. And, and this, was, this was my experience of prayer for a long time, probably first 30 years of my life. It's this prayer merry-go-round. And I mostly felt like a total failure at prayer. Anybody else, like, sympathize? Okay, that's a lot of us. Okay, good. Well, this is what I see most of the time when I sit with people. Most people fall into, you could say, kind of two camps, one is they, 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 there are those who don't pray, 
And then two would be that there are those who don't feel great about how they do pray. And the third camp is really, really rare. It's people who have a rich and meaningful practice of prayer. And this is what I want to try to cast a vision for today. I think part of why this is so common is that we have a lot of misconceptions about what prayer is. There are three that I see all the time, or maybe I see them, you spot it because you got it, you know. But the first one is prayer as like making pronouncements to God about God. You know, like, God, you're so this, or God, you're so this. Like, we're actually telling God something God doesn't know about God's self. Or, or that prayer is, uh, this is maybe the main one. It's like talking God into things. Like, could you please make this good thing happen or make this bad thing not happen, right? Anybody do a lot of prayer that's like that? And, and, and then the last one is kind of, this is probably Southern Baptist thing, because I was a Southern Baptist kid. But it's, it's prayer that has to be heartfelt, right? Or else it doesn't count. Um, and, and for, I think most people writing the, the prayer merry-go-round are probably operating with at least some of these misconceptions. You know, if you, if you take away making pronouncements to God or talking God into things and you don't really even feel like praying, like well, how much prayer is really left for us at this point? And for me, for a really long time, the answer was not much. Most of my prayers were telling God, you know, what I've been up to lately and what I needed God to do for me, and God knew what I had been up to, and God even knew what was good for me. So, like, what, what was the whole reason for this? And these, these misconceptions kept me on that merry-go-round. And it wasn't really until well into my 30s that I actually began to learn a completely different approach to Christian prayer. Um, and it's rooted, I think, in, in our tradition. Because um, in all places, in all times, really until very recently, and mostly just in America, Christians have always prayed. It almost never occurred to Christians not to pray or to see it as a burden or obligation. However, what we mean by prayer, it looked very different. It looked nothing like the way I was, was taught to pray. And it wasn't so much I was, like, doing something wrong. It's more like I just, I just didn't know what I was doing. And I was missing this long tradition of prayer that reaches all the way back to, like, ancient Israel. And the, it was the kinds of prayer that Jesus prayed and his followers prayed for a couple thousand years now. I'm going to read three verses for you from the scripture. And I want you to see if you can pick up on what these three have in common. Um, in Acts chapter 2, it says, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, his disciples. Then it does the bit about the, the Holy Spirit, and they begin to prophesy and preach and speak in tongues. And everybody's criticizing them. And Peter says, These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. That's Acts 2. Um, Acts 3 says, One day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer, at three in the afternoon. That's where they, they find the, the um, beggar and heal the, the guy with the lame hand. That's Acts 3. Acts 10 says, About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. Okay, those are the three odd verses. But did you catch what they have in common? It's that they all describe prayers happening around a particular time of the day. All three of them do. Acts 2, it's prayer at 9 a.m. Acts 3, it's prayer at 3 p.m. Acts 10, it's at noon. 
And it, it turns out in, in the ancient world, this is how they prayed. Prayer happened at particular times of the day, 9 a.m., noon, and 3 p.m. were three of the common hours of prayer or moments when people would stop to pray. And there's actually a particular history to this. You know, Christianity, we talk about this a lot, was, um, have you heard the, um, the thing, it's like a, it's a social media thing where um, girls are supposed to ask boys how often they think about the Roman Empire. Anybody seen this? And if you go to this church, you're like, all the time. We talk about it almost every week. Because Christianity was born into the Roman Empire, which dominated much of the ancient world, including the places where Jews were living, like Jerusalem and the, the region of Judea. And, um, you know, most people think that what makes an empire is their army, which is part of it. But what really makes an empire is their economy. The, the engine of empire runs on efficiency and power and economics. And Rome had built an incredible economic engine. And, and it, was, it was all con constructed with efficiency in mind. So, so in every kingdom, every land that, that Rome conquered and swallowed up as they were expanding, they would go into all the towns and cities and villages and set up these Roman-style marketplaces that functioned as the center of communal life. So the center of communal life in, in Rome, Roman cities and towns, it was the market, not the temple. That was the center of communal life and the center of their daily rhythms and, and their social structure. And it went like this, 6 a.m., the bell in the forum would ring or in, in whatever town they were in, signaling the opening of the markets. This was the first hour or the prime hour. Everybody had to get up and go to work at the markets. Then 9 a.m., um, the terse, or third hour, it rang again to mark the day's progress. You're like halfway to, to lunch. Then at noon was the sext, or sixth hour. And the bell rang again to signal a break from work. And they would, they would shut down the, the market. And um, everybody would go home, have some lunch. It was time to do like personal errands or, or, or work or take a nap, something like that. And then at 3 p.m., um, the known or ninth hour, the bell rang again and called everybody back to work and, and signaled the opening of the markets for the afternoon. And then finally, 6 p.m., came Vespers. The bell rang. Uh, Vespers means evening. It, it, it rang to signal the closing of the market. And so these five bells rang every single day um, in, in the markets, Roman markets. And they were to make sure that everyone lived efficiently according to the same rhythm that was centered on the market. Life was disorganized in the Roman Empire around these bells and the rhythms of markets and the economy. And this, this, this produced this highly efficient market economy in, in Rome. But then suddenly you got all these Christians whose first allegiance is not to Rome or Roman markets, but, but rather to prayer and weekly worship, Sabbath keeping, stuff like that. This allegiance to like an ancient way of life that revolved around worship and prayer. And really kind of hidden in plain sight in the scriptures, we can see how the people of God had ordered the rhythms of their day all along, not around markets, but around prayer. So in Psalm 119 that we read earlier, King David wrote, seven times a day do I praise you. He wasn't bragging. He was just saying, this is how we practice our faith as, as Jews. We stop seven times a day and pray. 
When Daniel was living in Babylon, remember when um, Nebuchadnezzar made the decree, they all had to stop and bow down and worship this, this one idol, and there was no more prayer to another god. Daniel 6 says, when Daniel learned that law had been signed, he went home and knelt down as usual in his upstairs room with its windows open toward Jerusalem, and he prayed three times a day, it says, just as he had always done, giving thanks to God. The people of God have always ordered their lives around the rhythms of prayer. Many of the Psalms mention morning prayer. There's a bunch of them. There's this, this idea that as the day begins, it should be consecrated to God. Some of the same passages and other ones in the scriptures mention midday prayer. There's kind of this natural break at midday where you take a beat, take a breath, and, and they thought this should be used to reconnect to the divine. Others mention evening prayers because there's this kind of meditative, um, contemplative aspect to evening time. It's when we take stock of the day, you know, it's when we do some of our thinking, some of our meaning making. And, and this was their rhythm. I clear back to the time of King David. I mean, today, uh, almost the only people who really do this um, in, in a like, organized, concerted way are, are Muslims. And you, you have to remember that, you know, that's what, six, seven, eight hundred is when that began to form after the year or after the birth of Christ. They, they got that practice from Christians, from Jews. And, and so just, just imagine, like, put yourself in, in Jerusalem or G Judea or something. You've, you've lived for centuries or you've lived with a people who for centuries have, have organized their common life around the rhythms of prayer. And then some empire rolls in, dictating this, this new order through these bells that ring, and they tell you when to report to work, and, and they center your life around markets and production and consumption and participation in this economic engine of, of Rome. What do you do? How do you react? this. And what the Jewish people did, and later Christians did, is this. When, when 6 a.m. came and the bell would ring, instead of running off to the markets, they would go to the temple, or at least face the temple, and pray. 9 a.m. when the bell would ring, they'd stop their work and often gather in like somebody's stall. You know, they'd, they'd walk a few down and they'd kind of, you know, subversively huddle up, do their prayers. At noon, before going home to lunch or to do their work or take a nap, they would gather in prayer. Then when the 3 p.m. bell rang to call them back, they would first just kind of defy its insistence and go to pray. And then at 6 p.m., when the bell rang, signaling closing time, they gathered again and they, they prayed. In fact, if you've ever been to a monastery you'll recognize this because like to this day in Christian monastic orders, these are the names they give to the hours where they gather and pray. Prime, terse, sext, known, Vespers. Anybody been to a Vespers service ever? Yeah, it comes from the name they gave these Roman, you know, it comes from Roman markets. And, and so their reaction was this really creative and I mean subversive practice. They transformed the bells of Roman markets and the kind of imposed rhythms of empire into their own rhythm of prayer. Isn't that stunning? It's like a really creative thing to do. And, and by the time of Christ, this was fully ingrained 
in the Jewish people. I mean, the reason the church was gathered at 9 a.m. on the day of Pentecost was to pray, because that's when they gathered to pray. It was 9. That's when the bells rang. That's when they did it. The reason Peter and John met the beggar at the gate and healed his hand at 3 p.m. was 3 p.m. was one of the hours when you, when you pray. Um, when Peter was traveling in Acts 10 that we read and, and um, had this experience on the rooftop praying at noon, why was he there? Because noon is one of the times when his people always prayed. The earliest Christians organized their days around the rhythms of prayer at these fixed times. In fact, this came to be known as fixed hour prayer. Anybody heard of that, that line, fixed hour prayer? Or have you ever heard of the daily office? Anybody heard? That's, an, that's another name for that. Um, which is kind of, daily office is an odd name. It took me forever to figure it out. I finally had to look up the words. Um, it, it comes from the Latin word for work is opus. So like a magnum opus is somebody's like most powerful work. Our English word office comes from opus. You can kind of hear it. And so opus just means work. So office meant work, right? And so the way that they named their habit of prayer is this kind of rebellious play on words, saying the true work, the true opus, the true office for the Christian is prayer. Daily office just means our daily work. As Christians. Six times a day, the bells would ring in the forum or in the Campanile in Jerusalem or whatever little town or village they were in with the market. And while everybody else went to the markets, the Christians went to pray. And this is, this is how they prayed for centuries. Really, you know, up until recent times, like maybe 150, 200 years. And mostly in America, by the way. Um, even still, in America, it's really true in Europe, but even still in America, every day at 8 p.m., then again at noon, and again, you know, 4.30 or 5 p.m., this wave of prayer comes to us from the east and just washes over us as up and down the, our time zone, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people stop and pray to God. And one of my practices, this is what I got taught in my early 30s, was try to catch the wave as it comes by. And, and just try to be caught up in the wave of prayer three times a day. And this is still how millions of Christians pray. And so, if, if this is the, um, the daily office or fixed hour prayer, if this is the how of what they prayed, what's the, the what? What did they pray, actually? Strictly speaking, in the scriptures, the answer to what did they pray is they prayed the prayers, which is not really like, does not sound like an answer. Like you have to know what that means. Um, there are some examples though from which we can infer like the Acts 2 says the early Christians devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Does that sound familiar? The, this is the NIV and it's actually wrong. This is a terrible translation. In Greek, that word for prayer is plural. It should say they devoted themselves to um, teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and to the prayers. The prayers is a particular thing. And um, another time in Acts, you can kind of see what it is. Peter and John, it's when, remember when they were arrested? 
and then they got released, and the people come together, and they're rejoicing because they thought, oh no, they're going to get killed like, like Christ was killed. And it says, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father, David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain and the kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one? Anybody recognize that, that text? That It's kind of a familiar thing. It's Psalm 2. It's, it's part of the prayer book. They, when, when they got together to celebrate, they prayed the prayers, which for them meant the Psalms. The Psalms were the prayer book of the people. Or they would often recite other prayers, like the Shema. We've talked about this before. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. This was almost like the Lord's Prayer for, for the Jewish people. And Jesus would have prayed the Shema, heroes Israel, and, and the Psalms every single day of his life. Most likely three times a day, if not more. And over time, this shaped his imagination and shaped his language, his categories of thought, the way he theorized the world. And so it's not surprising, you know, that the Shema came up in his teaching when he told people, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Or that on the cross, in his like most desperate moment, he would pray the Psalms. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a psalm. This, this language just sort of emerged from his life because the rhythms of his day had him in this language all the time. And so the prayers were, were the psalms and other prayers and creeds of the people. Early Christians then added things like the Lord's Prayer. Or they chanted songs like the one in Philippians 2, you know, that um, he, though being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself and emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, you know that one? That's actually a, an early hymn, an early song. And they composed tons of other prayers and creeds and songs and hymns and down through the centuries the church shared these with each other and and some of them kind of they sort of became the hits play play the play the hits play the classics these these little snippets of language that were tried and vetted and proven like across like different times and places and cultures and locales they they were proven to be faithful words that, that helped build a Christian imagination when they tried to speak to God or about God or to each other about God. And at various times throughout the church, they would sort of compile these prayers. Um, for us, as English speakers, the most famous um, came in, in 1549 by an Englishman named Thomas Cram Cranmer who compiled um, a bunch of prayers. This was during the Reformation and they were trying to not have to use Catholic books, so they needed their own books, and he, he put together the Book of Common Prayer, which we use a lot. It's, it's a reliable guide for the rhythms of prayer, and it kind of has a lot of scripture, a lot of the psalms in it, a lot of the, the, the prayers people have written and prayed and held on to because they were like, these are good, these, these say what needs to be said. 
And, and this tradition reaches all the way back to King David through Daniel, you know, down through Christ and the apostles, the early church, and, and the last 2,000 years of, of church history. And they've proven to be useful. And so, so the, how, the how of Christian prayer is the norm is to, to pray at particular moments as a rhythm, as a discipline during the day. The what of prayer is the prayers, which strictly speaking, what they are is, this is a word that we use a lot, it, they are liturgies, or prayers that were written down and protected and used in worship, in the rhythms of prayer. That word liturgy is kind of weird. It's, it's an English word that comes from a Greek word used in the Bible, liturgia, which um, literally just means work of the people. And so the idea was that for, for the people of God, there was the work of the priests set out in, in the Old Testament, Leviticus, and then there was the work of the people, which was weekly worship and daily prayer. That's our work. And we, sh we shouldn't gloss over this, because I think the implications are huge for all of us. The liturgy of the church, the work of the people, is weekly worship and daily prayer, and this engagement with language, liturgy. That's our work. And it's, it's this huge tradition of like the psalms, prayers of the church, spiritual songs, worship music, whatever is hymns. It's all stuff that's supposed to shape our imagination and shape the language that Christians use. And the work of the Christian community, the work of the people, the liturgy involves what we're doing right now, gather on the Sabbath and, and speak the words together, play, play with the words. Um, and then to pause during the week at certain designated moments throughout the day and engage, work the words again. And to do this is just like a set part of our daily rhythms. And so, so this word liturgy it, for us means the words we work, like privately or, or corporately, as we pray and worship God. That's our, our liturgy. It's the words we use in our opus, our office, our, our work of prayer. And everybody has a liturgy. Like some people are sort of anti-liturgy. Everyone has a liturgy. It's, it's written or not written down. But everybody has phrases and sayings and symbols that they use in prayer. And um, I know the idea of written prayers in worship hits people a little bit differently. Like if you grew up Catholic or something, you might, it might symbolize a whole bunch of stuff to you, like dead religion or something like that. But I was taught. You know, the only prayer that mattered had to be extemporaneous, and it had to be, you know, heartfelt, like, or it didn't count. In fact, it was really a lot better if you would cry, like, that way we would know. And, and so I was very skeptical of this, and you might be too, but let me give you an analogy that might help. You know, every week we gather and we sing songs that are pre-written. And thank goodness we do this. Like, can you imagine if we all had to make up the lyrics every week on the spot? Like, that, that would not go very well. There would be no singing from the heart. There would be just a lot of eye rolling and wondering what is going on. You know, we, we don't do that. We, we sing songs that are 
pre-written, they're composed and written down. And, but we work those words as we sing, and they get lodged in our hearts and our minds. We sing sometimes with great emotion. Um, oftentimes in my life, when I, when I hit struggles, when I'm scared, I, I will often, my mind will go to the hymns and to songs, and I'll, I'll be singing them in my head or even out loud. And the, the fact that they're written down doesn't make it less likely that they'll be a help. It makes it more likely. And, and especially because they're vetted. They're, I, I can trust them. I know that they're true and good words. And the songs themselves aren't, aren't dead or alive. It's the person singing the songs that brings them to life. And this, the same thing goes for liturgical prayer. Um, in fact, I think to, to ask if a liturgy is a dead liturgy is kind of a category error. It's, it's not a question of whether a liturgy is dead or alive. It, the real question is whether a liturgy is true or false. I mean, all liturgies have to be brought to life by a speaker. The question is whether the words being brought to life are true words, as in they can make us true, truly human, as human is meant to be. And you guys, we have a rich treasure trove of, of words that have been worked and used and proven to be true over the, the centuries. And so the how of Christian prayer for a long time has been rhythmic and fixed our prayer. The what is the prayers, the liturgies, the words. So what's the why? Why do, why do we pray? And for me, this was the, the most difficult part, I think, of my prayer deconstruction because it involves admitting how in love we are in our society with, like, authenticity and, like, personal freedom, sincerity, also, like, freedom of choice, freedom expression. We're, we're really quite hyper-individualistic and self-centered. We're just bathed in that in our culture. We're, religion, anything, it has to be a choice. It has to be free, like the markets. And, and like the ultimate pilgrimage is, is self-actualization, you know, to find oneself. And most Christians can't even say what, why what I'm describing is, is wrong. But I really do think if we're going to follow Jesus and become his disciples, we have to be formed in, in the way that he was formed. And this first means the language we work in prayer. You may have heard the, the phrase, words form worlds ever heard that a lot of people have said it if we're going to ever imagine like a different or better world than one we now have now we're going to need different words better words than what we typically use and we're we're constantly shaped by the language of culture which pushes us toward like self-expression and personal freedom that the individual is is king and, and I just have very little confidence that any of us can punch our way out of that corner without specific rhythms where we engage better language, you know what I mean? And maybe the, one of the most powerful things we can do to counteract that is to entrust our, ourselves to the prayers, the liturgies, to give us a new imagination for what's possible in the world, a new language that will cultivate that. And um, this is a lot of why we come to worship each week, is just to work the liturgy, work these words together. And um, then the thing that's, I mean, y'all are here, so you got that down. Um, but it, it becomes then 
a, big, a bigger deal to have these rhythms throughout our regular days where we're just engaging the language. And to somehow do that in a way that's not super individualistic, you know, or self-actualization, and a way that doesn't just like load us up with guilt, you know what I mean? Like obligations and stuff like that. Um, how this works for me, I'm just gonna tell, tell you how it works for me. And maybe that'll help you have a place to start. Um, if you want help figuring this out, please come talk to me. Because um, it's one of my favorite things to sit with people and, and try to game this out. This is how it works for me. When I first get up, like the first moment I have alone each day, I read what's called the morning office, morning work, opus from the Book of Common Prayer. And I do this. We have a, a slide. I think if you go to that, that next slide with the, the website on it. Um, I do this, I cheat. I don't use the Book of Common Prayer itself usually because it's, it's actually, you have to flip back and forth and follow. It's, it's kind of hard to, to use if you didn't grow up with it. And they just, um, it, at this website, Mission St. Clair, they have a calendar there. You can go down and click calendar right for October, it's right to, and click on that and, and it will take you to the liturgy and you can just read it slowly, prayerfully, or quickly, in a hurry. Just get the language, work the words, you know. If, and if that's too confusing or long, you can also, there's one called daily, daily Devotions, which is kind of an abbreviated version. This would be a really easy place to start. You know, you sit down at your desk, or you sit down, you know, at your first moment with your morning coffee or whatever, go to Mission St. Clair. If you want to really cheat, and I do this more, um, more times than not, there's, over to the right, this is a podcast of that same scripture, same um, exact liturgy. And it's on all the podcasting platforms, Morning Prayer from the Episcopal Church in Garrett County. And I, I do this almost every morning. But I have to warn you, okay, this is user, user warning. This, this podcast, there's music with it. It is like the worst pan flute music you've ever heard in your life. It's like Zamfir, the pan pan dude. In fact, Joey, is Joey crazy here? Joey, he's, I, I have given this before, and Joey tried to do it, and he's like, I cannot listen to this. This is horrible. He actually found the dude. It's like a real album that they use this pan flute music from. It's really bad, so I apologize for that. Um, but if you'll, it will bother you at first, because it's bad. But um, that the music, they use the same music for each of the different elements, and so it starts to work like the bells. I think that's why they do it. It sort of prompts you, we're moving to this now, because they use the same song for each element. Does that make sense? So, so hopefully, <laughs> some of you are gonna have such a weird experience when you go, <laughs> if you, it really is awful music. Um, but it's just an easy way to once a day, I mean, you can do this on, on your way into the office or something. Hit this podcast up, and it's about 15 minutes, and, and work the words. And you can know I'm somewhere working the words, and a bunch of us are, are doing the same, and even up and down our time zone, tens of thousands of people, you're jo joining this cascade of prayer as it washes over us. That's the first one. Then I have a, an alarm set on my phone for noon, it goes off at noon wherever I am, and I stop. If I can, I go to Mission St. Clair and do the, the midday office, or I just grab a psalm. Sometimes if I'm with other people, I'll just silently to myself say the Lord's Prayer. But it, it makes me work some words. And then right before I go home, 
I, I try to do the Vespers or evening prayer. Or sometimes I'll just read a psalm. Or a lot of times what I do is I just end up sitting in silence for a couple minutes. Just be still in the presence of God. And um, if I'm doing really good right before bed, I'll, I'll read a psalm or, or do one of the, the Compline. It's called the, a late night liturgy. And my goal is just to maybe two or three times a day stop and pray like Christians have always done. And here's the deal. I almost always fail to meet my goal. I mean, I get morning done maybe five, six days a week. I'm shooting for seven. Midday, honestly, I want to say two to three. It's more like one to two. Um, the other ones, sporadically, now and then. Truthfully, I, I miss more than I make. But I got to tell you, I, I learned to pray like this in 2003. It's been 20 years. The impact of this over time, I, I can't adequately tell you. I mean, I was a failure, a prayer failure. And I counted it up. Going on 20 years now, I've been praying the daily office somewhere around 6,500 times, maybe more. That's pushing somewhere around 2,000 hours. If you're counting full days, that's somewhere around set between 70 and 80 full days I've spent in prayer. Learning to say something true about my life and the world and, and what it means to be human. And, and these categories, man, they have just like shaped the way my mind works, the way I hear things, uh, my reactions, my language, my categories of, of thought, they've just been scrambled by these words. And I mean, that's, that's, that is a lot of time praying for a total failure at prayer. And, and I don't even feel like the same person I was 20 years ago. And here's the other thing. Um, if, if you looked at any single day, if you observed me and it, or quizzed me, it would seem like nothing's happening. It, it almost never feels like anything. I just, the, the alarm goes off and I work the words and I don't judge it. Sometimes I don't feel anything. But over time, it, it has a dramatic impact. And, and one more thing, almost any time I'm really struggling, like when I'm hurting and just like in a bad place, this is right where I go. I check my rhythms. Am I doing these rhythms of prayer? And those are times when it, it, it has been such a consolation to me. Um, if nothing else, if the words aren't a consolation, just knowing I'm not alone, that other Christians are doing this right now. I'm, I'm part of a people, and I'm part of this thing that God is taking somewhere. Going back to these sacred rhythms of Sabbath-keeping, tithing even, of weekly worship and daily prayer, trusting those practices will train me over time, and help me meet the challenges of my own life and our challenges together as a people. How to be faithful, right? Come what may. I think this, um, this way of praying is incredibly powerful and I would encourage everyone to try to find a way to schedule it into your life.
And so here's what we're gonna do. You have an assignment, you have homework. This is what I want you to do, if you're up for it, is take your phone and set yourself an alarm for noon for every day of the week. Just set it for noon. And when it goes off, all of us as a church, we're gonna collectively pray. We're gonna try this for, for the next week and see what happens. Uh, we've done this before, and a lot of you, when I'm sitting with you, every time I'm with Jim Schmidt in a meeting for Good Faith Network at noon, our, our alarms start going off, and everybody's like, gets alarmed. They're like, what's going on? Um, but set your alarm for noon and stop and do some kind of prayer. At very least, just say the Lord's Prayer. Um, if you want to jump on and do a bigger liturgy or read a psalm, you can do that. But for the next week, let's try this. Everybody set your alarm for noon for all the days of the week, and at noon, let's stop and we'll pray together. You want to try it? All right, let's do it. Let's pray. Oh God, we ask you to um, help us to set up rhythms of prayer and that these rhythms would change us. And I pray, God, that for all of us who feel um, like prayer is a burden or feel like we stink at it, like we're failures, um, that you would meet us in these times. We pray that we would um, organize our life, the rhythms of our days, around these moments of reverence for you and around these great words. Teach us to work the words together. Amen. Will you stand, please? And um, we're going to receive communion now. The way that we do communion at Redemption is um, our kids will be coming back in and um, the ushers will release us row by row. You come forward, we'll be offered a plate of bread and a cup. You just take a piece of the bread and dip it into the cup and receive it. And as you do, they'll say, remember the body and blood of Christ. And you can respond by saying, um, I will remember, or however you feel comfortable. The reason we do this um, is that on the night Jesus, his last night with his, his disciples, he gave them this practice. Um, it's supposed to be a rhythm that they do. He had them all eat from the same loaf of bread and drink from the same cup. And then he said, symbolically, this, this bread is like my body, this cup is like my blood or my life. And he said, every time you gather as a people, I want you to receive this together, like eat some bread and, and some wine and receive it into your bodies. And, and he said, it's like receiving me and, and do this, he said, in remembrance of me. It's like um, we, we receive Christ and then we're made out of the stuff he's made up. That's, that's the symbolism of communion. And so this is why when we gather, we do communion. And it's also why we invite anybody who calls on the name of Jesus to join us in this meal. So before we do that, though, would you join me in blessing the bread and the cup? Oh God, we do ask you to bless this, this drink, this bread. May it be to us a means of your grace and a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out. And then send us out into the world to be salt and light. And let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. All of this to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forevermore.
Amen. Will you come?